Hey everybody, it is Amber Love from Vodka O'Clock Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget, we are labeled as an explicit website and podcast. So returning to Vodka O'Clock, I love when I have return guests. It's Jeremy Holt. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's pretty exciting. So, um... We're going to talk about a lot of things, but uh, first off the bat is your newest comic book project, and I, I want uh, you to give the listeners a rundown so that we can talk about this, this very cool subject matter that you have here. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, so is this, uh, is this first of all, an, an image book? or? Uh, no, it's <laughs> as much as I'd like it to be. Um, right now, I'm currently self-publishing it. Um, uh, there, there is interest from publishers, but until that gets kind of uh, until I until that ink dries, okay. um, I'm just kind of uh, pushing through and, and doing it myself. Okay, so so give us the title and the the pitch. So the title is After Houdini, and it's a um, semi biographical action adventure that uh, follows the estranged son of uh, Harry Houdini, uh, who, other than being the world's most famous magician is also a covert spy for American and British intelligence uh, during World War One. Okay, so then which part of this is actually true? Um, the uh, the actual, I mean, Harry Houdini, obviously everyone knows. Um, he did not have a son. That is the fictitious part of the story. Um, and there are theories um, that I've done some research on, a lot of research actually, um, that he was actually involved with covert operations while doing his world tours uh, between the years of 1900 and 1907. Um, I mean, he had he was very he was friends with Teddy Roosevelt. He had friends at Scotland Yard. He knew British intelligence, um, so he was relaying information. Um, some some theorize that he was doing this. So whether it's true or not, that's up to de- for debate. But um, a book that I'd read is called The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero, uh, which is by these authors, William Kalush and Larry Sloman, um, that are huge Houdini fans, and they, their research is impeccable about his life and his career, but this book was kind of the framework and the jumping-off point for me to come up with this idea of Houdini being a, a spy. And I decided to take that one step further and focus the story on his son because I thought that readers would be it would be easier for them to align with a character that they know nothing about. Um, it's one thing to make Harry the main character, which at the very beginning, that was the idea with, with the artist Kevin Ziegler. But we realized that that character in himself is too big, and there's just too much about him, and people have their own ideas of who he was, what he did, how he died. And I didn't really want to kind of meddle with that. I, I just wanted to start fresh with a new character. Okay. That was uh, that sort of leads into what I was going to ask you about writing historical fiction basically is um, because I'm sort of in the process of doing the exact same thing only with people far less famous and I am afraid of like butchering the real facts but trying to fit it into this fake part of you know this fake plot line that I have yeah it's it is really challenging and I was really nervous about it at first because I didn't know if a I'd find enough material or B, there would be too much material, and I didn't know where to go with it. Um, it ended up being a lot of material that I found, and the idea of focusing on his son and kind of adding more fantastic elements, adding the idea that magic is real, um, and that is, that's something that, that was 
perhaps in my in my story is the greatest trick that Harry figured out was that magic is real. It is a tangible force that you can tap into, and that took me I'd say months before I kind of kind of accepted that idea because I, I really wanted, like you said, to stay with the material, and but at the same time I didn't want it to be like this boring biography. So. Yeah, I yeah I completely understand. Like um, you know these these people that I've been researching. There was only so much information I was able to find without, you know, maybe going actually like and doing very in-depth Hall of Records searches. I'm trying to just work off of what I can find on the Internet. And I'm like making up spouses and children <laughs> because I'm like, well, this is this is what I need. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, really all you need to do is, as you know, if there's a, a historical timeline, which is something that I've kind of mapped out. And I decided to set it in a specific year. Um, and by doing that, it, it kind of helps you. It, it's a guide to determine who's going to be involved in the story, what historical characters you want to include to kind of ground it in reality. But, you know, I, I, I've gotten to a point where I've got my key players. I know who I want to include so people know. Um, like the first three pages, you see um, Woodrow Wilson, which is, you know, obviously a president everybody might recognize, and that kind of sets the tone in the, in the time period um, without having to kind of say it. You know, I, I'm kind of of the method of show, don't tell. Right. Um, but, yeah, as long as you kind of sprinkle moments in the, of historical fact, um, I think that's really, it's really all you need to do to keep the, the reader grounded. And it was actually a lot of fun because – the dates I was looking up and historical events were lining up perfectly with my story. And it was really eerie. Like I'd say there's like half a dozen emails between me and Kevin where he'd send me something. He's like, dude, this happened right on the month that we're talking about. I'm like, did it really? And I'd look it up. I'm like, Oh my God, that's crazy. Like I can't even make this stuff up. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I've, I've heard of, um, artists going so far as to check proper moon phases so that their oh, art is accurate, and I'm like, wow, that's just nuts. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so after Houdini, what is your plan for um, for formatting this and releasing it? How, do you have, like, you know, a set number of issues and everything worked out? Yeah, it's it's right now it's going to be five issues um, at the standard 22-page length. I've already outlined the whole thing. I actually just finished scripting issue three today. Um, but it does lead into a bigger story, and, and it's something Kevin and I had agreed upon before we started working on this, was that we see three story arcs, three five-issue arcs, so 15 issues total. Whether we get that far, we'll have to see, but we are um, committed to finishing the first arc. And this was actually an idea that Kevin brought to me. Him and I had been working for a while, and I actually met him through Trad Moore, who's you know become quite... Uh, Quite, inf- quite well known in the industry because of his art, and um, Kevin and Trad were actually college roommates, and they actually went to the same art school I went to, but they were a whole generation after me. I graduated graduated in 05. They graduated in 2010, so they're much younger. But uh, Trad was like, "Yeah, you need to work with Kevin. He needs to make comic books. That's what he should be doing." So we worked on different books, Kevin and I, for about a year and a half to two years, and it just nothing really gelled. He just wasn't fully committed to some of the ideas I was pitching him. So it got to a point where I was like, okay, what do you want to draw? And he's like, I really love Harry Houdini. I have this idea. I was like, okay. And then from there, we just kind of started spitballing ideas, and and uh, that's how it all started. That's actually um, advice that I hear from veteran writers all the time when it comes to how to 
woo an artist is ask them what they want to draw. That's what we learn in comics experience, and that's, you know. It's the easiest way to get an artist to commit to a project because they feel invested. And they, and, and honestly, I want an artist to feel invested. I want it to be completely collaborative because, you know, I, I've done the whole page rate, and I respect people that, that go down that route and, and only work that way, but I never got good results from artists working that way. And I, and I want, you know, sh- to share that ownership with someone. And, you know, just it just makes it more fun because then, you know, I... I actually build a friendship with someone, and, and Kevin and I have become really good friends, and we actually met for the first time at HeroesCon a few weeks ago, and it was really cool to finally meet in person, but we kind of felt like we'd known each other for a while. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to be working on a project for, you know, possibly a year or more, you know, depending on if this is a full-time job or not. Right. And you you definitely need to know that you can work together as and obviously people are going to disagree on stuff all project teams do um, but if you disagree in such a way that you produce better results that's the goal sure for sure um, but the uh, you know like I, I'm always panicked about you know this script that I'm working on because it's just a story that I want to do I'm like well I might not find anybody who cares about this <laughs> I don't know if I have an artist. Um, you know, but we're going to we're going to get into a little bit of art talk in, in just a bit. I want to talk about Houdini a little bit more. Um, well, are you going to release this digitally, I'm assuming? Um, yeah, it's going through Challenger Comics right now, which is a uh, self-publishing uh, publisher through uh, Ryan Ferrier, is the guy who's kind of running the whole show and he's a great writer in his own right. He's got a lot of exciting projects coming out in the fall, and uh, him and I have been working together for about a year now. He's been lettering a lot of my projects, and he was kind enough to put it out through his website. And um, I decided to go that route rather than, say, submitting it to Comixology because uh, the issue that I released is is a black-and-white issue. Uh, colors are happening or kind of getting together this month and next month. Um, but other than that, I, I do the interest that I'm getting from some uh, publishers, I, I didn't want... To me, it just felt way too official to put it up on Comixology because then I wouldn't know how to take it down if I had to. Um, and with Ryan, it's just kind of like very personal and, and, and easy to, you know, figure things out and change things if you wanted to. So uh, for now, I'm just really happy doing that. Okay, and then the, the ultimate goal would be, you know, a print collection yes. to, to for, you know... Uh, it's one of those things where one of the reasons that print will never die is because we like to to go to a booth at a con and buy stuff and have it signed. Oh, absolutely. So that's, you know, until people are, you know, e-signing tablets or something, <laughs> you know, and being able to purchase on the spot at a booth for some reason, like if you're sitting there at a booth and you're given a code immediately, um, you know, but that's, I don't know, the, I don't know what the cash process of that would be like. I, you know, all I can picture in my head is the, you know, the lifestyle and Batman Beyond. Yeah, and, and the thing is, with, with tablets and iPads, I think it's great. I, I I am convinced I need to get one just to read digital comics, but, you know, everyone says they're great, but no one talks about the trade. Like, if you pick up a trade paperback, I wouldn't want to read that on an iPad. I personally like having them on my shelf, and I collect comic books, and I get the whole argument with single issues. Like, it's harder to store them, and, like, it just kind of accumulates and you don't know what to do with them. And yeah, I, I get it. iPads are great for single issues when you're getting them every Wednesday. But but when you get a collected volume, I, 
I'd want to buy it. So, you know, I, I don't think print's going anywhere for a while. Yeah, definitely not. And it's and it's interesting that um, that whether it's the creator's choice of publishers, mostly creators, I think choice that they're offering different versions. Yes. Uh, you know that if you get one or the other, you might get different backup features or uh, you know concept art or or you know things like that. And then there's then there's the whole Kickstarter uh, crowdsourcing version where a lot of things have their own exclusive content for the the people who have backed the project to begin with. Yeah, I can see the I can see the appeal of Kickstarter. I mean, I'm in the process of, of finding a colorist. Um, for after Houdini and, and uh, you know I think I have a couple people that are, are serious considerations and one of them was mentioning um, a page rate not that he needed up front but more back end um, and I was doing the math and I'm like oh my god that's that's a lot of money like I need to make sure this book sells or I'm just going to be paying this out of pocket so I can see the appeal of Kickstarter when you can kind of get that crowdfunding up up front and and make sure your team gets paid. Yeah, I was sort of looking at that too, and I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, because if I, I'm looking at strictly, you know, like if I if I'm strictly doing like a work for hire thing, I'm just like, yeah. oh my god. Yeah, it's crazy, and, and like to be honest, like Kevin and I, I feel so fortunate working with him, and and the other thing is that because it was kind of his his idea, and he he didn't know how to progress it, and we kind of progressed it together. Um, you know, we both understand that. Look, we're probably not going to get paid for this, and. But we don't, we're not doing it to get paid. This is a story he's been wanting to tell for years now, and this is something that I'm, I'm very excited to tell since I've been writing it and researching it and all that. So, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's a struggle. Like, him and I were talking about this yesterday. Like, life gets in the way, and, like, it can kill your productivity sometimes. But when when him and I both think of this comic and we think of this story, we get excited about it. And that's that's the best situation I could ask for. So who are your favorite illusionists um, besides Houdini? Do you have any other favorites? Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't really know, actually. I, I, um, the, first, the only ma- magic act I'd ever seen, I saw David Copperfield live once when I was a kid, and uh, I thought it was pretty amazing, but I, I think I was too young to really grasp what was, what was happening, because I just... The only trick I remember him doing was he he was on a motorcycle on stage and then somehow in the blink of an eye he's got the motorcycle on the balcony of this theater and he's sitting on it and I remember thinking wow that's that's magic but like I didn't really think about yeah you know sleight of hand or the, all the technical aspects um, but yeah I, I don't I I honestly don't follow magic enough. Um, to have a favorite, I did have a I did have a roommate in college who was really big in, big into illusions and um, actually one the tr- one of the tricks in the first issue of the comic is a trick that I watched my roommate do at parties all the time where he would have you pick five cards from the deck you'd have to conceal them put them in your back pocket whatever your shoe and then he'd you know make the cards disappear one by one and he'd transfer cards to you and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Because I just didn't understand how it was done. Um, so yeah, I've had you know um, experience with magic firsthand, but uh, you know, I didn't really grow up uh, with like favorites or anything. I think if I ever you know just like sort of had that windfall of money, I'd I definitely go and hit up the Magic Castle. Yeah, I've heard such great things about the shows there. 
Um, it just sounds it, it just sounds like such a special place where you know everybody gets all dressed up and it's you know and then there's like a, a special area that you have to be in like the magicians guild really to even get into uh, because it's like a private club just for them but the you know just the thought of seeing the performances seems really cool no for sure um, I had just seen that movie uh, now you see me and uh, which was actually really entertaining I thought the love story is a little weak but the illusions were really creative and the guy that they had enlisted as a consultant actually my fiance knew him through a job or something and and uh he's kind of made a big name for himself now out in la but his illusions are pretty cool he does this thing where he does a magic act that involves uh crossword puzzles um i'll, I'll send you the link on on who this is but it's really kind of amazing because it's like it's taking kind of old ideas of magic and making them more modern so they're in a context that's you know, a little bit more interesting other than just cards, you know. And uh, everybody loves a crossword, so when you can kind of fa- factor in something uh, magical about that, it's it's pretty neat. I got um, really obsessed uh, once I discovered Darren Brown. Uh, he's, he's a British illusionist oh. and mentalist. And all of his stuff is is like up on YouTube. And oh no, uh, I think I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's had a bunch of different television specials and series and stuff. But um, I, he's just he's so just literally hypnotic just to watch him because he studies so hard studying the the beat of when to say every single word that he says and when to, you know, when and how to move his body and move his arms and stuff. Literally, it is all so carefully worked out. And um, I'm also like, I love the show The Mentalist. So a lot of times you'll get like little tricks and stuff just by watching that show because it's all about how fake it is. Sure, sure. And, and um the the commentary on the the DVD you know tracks they have um, Apollo the guy who who's like helped train the crew and the cast and everything um, so I started following these people on on Twitter <laughs> I'm like oh my god this must be like the greatest life ever <laughs> like I can't imagine like you know learning to pickpocket. And, you know, I mean, it's like it's the littlest things, you know, it starts off, it starts off small carnival esque, Mm -hmm. you know, the sidewalk magicians. And that's actually actually how Houdini started. He was part of um, a traveling. I wouldn't call it a circus. It's more kind of a a, a, I don't don't know the term for it, but he was he would do small little acts with his his wife, uh, Bess. And. you know, what was amazing about him was that he introduced the idea of danger within magic, and he had the audience kind of, you know, he was, a, he was a really great showman, so he would get you invested in the idea that what you're about to witness is someone's death. And today that doesn't seem that crazy because, you know, we see crazy stuff on, you know, 300 different channels a day, but the fact that he did this... Um, was was just you know inspiring and and he was you know perhaps the most famous person on the planet at one point like everybody knew who he was and that's that's pretty amazing considering he was a magician like he was doing a trade that you know most people didn't really know anything about 
Yeah, and uh, and how he's just literally inspired the you know so many people. There's just countless amounts of people. I mean, I always think of you know the Prestige and the Illusionist. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, then you have like these the real performers like uh, Darren Brown and certainly. Uh, Guys like Penn and Teller. Sure, sure. But then you were just talking about introducing the danger factor, and we've had all these crazy reality shows about kind of self-harm, if you think about it, or at least dares to a very extreme extent, like Fear Factor. And, uh, you know, hey, those, there's guys that chew glass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they do, yeah. they do this. I see this at steampunk shows all the time because it's very carnival esque. Yeah. Uh, for for steampunk shows, there's always the the straitjacket escapes going on, and and they do amazing fire performances. So, I when I saw somebody chewing glass in New York one time, I was and I was cringing. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness! I know that there are things that you've trained your body to do. I'm like, but I just it's hard to watch. It's hard to hear because they always, you know, put the microphone right up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it desensitizes you for sure. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, the the stuff that Houdini was doing. Uh, I mean, it was just it was just amazing for the time period. Um, I mean, particularly just photographs that he was in. Like he he was basically more or less almost naked, covered in chains. I mean, at that time period. Nobody photographed anybody doing that, let alone printed it in a newspaper or a magazine. And he was bending, other than, you know, bars, he was bending, you know, stereotypes and and, um, social faux pas, I guess. Um, I mean, there are just these little things that people kind of don't think about anymore or take for granted that at the time period was was pretty amazing. Yeah, I think think you're right. Um, And... And at the same time, he would actively debunk as well. Yes. Yeah, that was that was kind of later, in the later part of his life, he decided to kind of dedicate himself. I think it was because he was just getting a little too old to perform the, the escape acts that he was doing, and he wanted to prove that, well, I mean, he, he just basically would sue just about anybody that tried to copy him. And other than that, like, he wanted to prove that, um, mystics and psychics were not real. And it was because I think he was duped at one point where he thought he was communicating with his father and then he found out it was a scam and then he decided to dedicate part of his life to kind of uh, shaming people and, and exposing them. Um, which is kind of an interesting concept for my series because I I do introduce real magic. And it's one of those things that, you know, what I'm I'm playing with is the idea that Harry Houdini that we know of is very much this character in this book. Everything he's done, everything he's said is still rings true in this book. But there is an underlying uh, history and you know decisions that he's made that kind of kind of contradict that. But he, you know he has to put up a front, um, and he, and he has. I mean, he's basically at this point he's an he's creating an alias of himself. Like he's not he's Harry Houdini who everyone knows, but he's also you know this. The spy, and he also can do things that are of you know not earthly things. Like he can, I mean, the idea that magic is very real is a source that he's tapped into. If he can tap into it, then others can too. And he is basically trying to defend America and its allies against a negative force that is uh, deciding to try to overthrow him and, and 
uh, take all of this power for themselves. So it's this kind of larger um, plot that goes on. But, you know, I wanted people to see, you know, Harry. And, and I didn't want to just show him doing his tricks. I thought it would be more interesting to show Joseph doing the tricks himself in a more exciting way. So that was a lot of fun, was kind of figuring out the, the major acts, like the, the milk can escape, the straight jacket, um, you know, these, these escaping from Scotland Yard, these things that made him very famous. I wanted to kind of feature these escapes in the book, but show them in a, in a new kind of fantastic way. How long did it take you to make the first issue? Mm, I'd say uh, maybe six months. I mean, it was a, it was kind of slow going. We we did the pitch last year, and the pitch was actually the last six pages of the issue. Um, pitched it around, got you know, people really liked it, but nobody really kind of committed to it. Um, and then I decided to I decided to just continue it. And I told Kevin, I was like, we should just continue this. I'd like to try to have this ready for Emerald City. Um, he didn't make that deadline, but uh, I was like, okay, Heroes Con is it. You know, this is a big show. I'm going to have a table. It's going to be great. There's going to be a lot of networking. I want to have this print copy so we can show people. And he, he got it done just under the wire, um, but it was about, yeah, six months in the making. And uh, so is it publicly available now uh, besides at the shows? it's uh, Yeah, through through challenge, ReadChallenger.com, you can actually buy the first issue for, for $2.99. And it includes a 10-page uh, backup comic that I wrote, um, and uh, Isaac Goodhart was the artist on that. It's kind of a crime noir, kind of in a Dashiell Hammett kind of vein. Okay. And what's your at least tentative schedule then for issue two? Um, I'm giving Kevin, we discussed this, we'd like to try to have the next issue out in the next six weeks. It would probably be another black and white version. Um, we've been getting a lot of good feedback from the black and white version that's out right now. Not that we're not going to do color, but we don't really need to um, expedite the coloring if, if we can keep churning out the issues black and white and then maybe collect it all as a colored book um but yeah six weeks every six weeks six to eight weeks we're hoping to kind of just kind of keep the momentum going and keeping people interested yeah i think the black and white worked completely well for it i mean there was no problem um and it a lot of times it's just one of those things where you get into a, a tone and uh it's you know, because this, I don't know, maybe because it was so old-timey just in thought, I, I didn't miss color, but I could see how, you know, obviously color is going to make something even more spectacular. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Kevin is still doing everything old school. Like, he's still drawing, penciling, inking on, on actual comic book pages. Uh, he had all of them available at Heroes Con, which is really neat to see. Um, and, and, like, his level de- of detail and the craftsmanship he has in inking really comes through on those pages because I, I just, I think he just did a really great job. And it's something that I sometimes you can lose doing it digitally. And he was going to try to do it digitally to kind of speed up his process, but I think he was having problems with his computer and Photoshop, so he decided to just kind of do it all by hand. But it came out really well. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it's great. I can't wait to see issue two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really excited. I mean, uh, I sent him issue three today, and he was like, he was so excited about it. He's like, I just want to, I want to just draw issue three. I was like, yeah, let, 
let's draw issue two first. Issue <laughs> three. He's like, okay. He's like, I'm just really excited. I'm like, awesome, because I'm excited, and you know, uh, it's uh, it's a fun story, and I think people. I don't know anyone who can't at least align themselves with magic in some way, and especially with Houdini. I mean, Houdini is a character that most people should know. Although when I was at Heroes, I was selling the book to people, and I and I said, oh, you know, how about this story? This is kind of a historical fiction. It's about Harry Houdini, and and the guy was like, who's who's Harry Houdini? Oh wow! It's <laughs> like, like really? And he thought about it. He's like, oh wait, like like that magic guy? I was like. Yeah, the magic guy. That, wow. that famous magic guy that's yeah. It's like, okay. Um but I mean, even if someone doesn't really know, you still kind of know in the back of your head because like I've always obviously known of Houdini, but I knew nothing about him until I started doing research about a year ago, so Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um you don't i mean a historical figure. I mean you don't necessarily need to know everything about them, but you hope that they're at least recognizable. Exactly. And he was very distinct. I mean, it's one of those things where when you see a photo, I think um, he was just such a character, like you yeah. said, uh, that there he was very recognizable. But, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if somebody never followed the vaudeville and carnival type thing, they, sure. they might not know. Sure. So we're going to... Um, segue into uh, some other, like, just things that we were talking about before I started hitting record. Um, but did you see the news today that, um, well, at least today, that the day that we're recording this, um, which is the 24th of June, that the author, Richard Matheson, died at the ripe old age of 87? I did see that. And uh, so he's responsible for, like, a great deal of satire... Um, thriller type fiction if you will stuff like I Am Legend and Hell House and Twilight Zone and Kolchak the Night Stalker um, did a you know famous Star Trek episode um, so I saw that all of my uh, all of my nerd friends are in mourning today <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I actually my best friend that's one of his favorite authors and, and I've actually never read any of his books and I, I did see I've seen the Twilight Zone obviously but um yeah, he would, my, my best friend would, whenever I'd mention it or we'd talk about something that reminded him of an episode of Twilight Zone or I Am Legend, he would just, he would just go into it. He'd just talk about it. He's like, story, man, you gotta read this story. It, it grips you. And like, um, I think there was one story in particular, I think it was called like Nightmare at 10,000 Feet or something, where it's like this passenger sees this, I guess it's like some kind of creature on the wing of the plane. And I distinctly remember seeing that in a Simpsons episode. Oh, well, that, I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think Simpsons did, but it was... Yeah, and that was, was my first introduction to that, I, and I was like, wow, he's responsible for that, because that, that thing, that's terrified me. And granted, it was, it was filtered through an, an animated series, but it terrified me. And yeah, I remember that, that Twilight Zone, though, because yeah. Twilight Zone scared the heck out of me. You and I were talking about how we're afraid of the dark, <laughs> and <laughs> not ashamed of it, but, you know, we live out in the country, and it's really effing dark. Um, so I can't watch things like Supernatural in the dark. Um, and it's a lot of fun when you hang out with horror writers, let me tell you. I mean, I can, I can watch gratuitous violence. That doesn't bother me. But, and, and if, depending on the setting, like, in the context of a scary movie, if it's, say, like, um, uh, Paranormal Activity 
or I think that was that was the one where it's the couple is the movie starts out with this couple making dinner in their in, in their house, and I'm like, no, I cannot watch this because I do that every day. Like I'll watch that's like, I know what you mean. Event Horizon where it's on a space station. Fine, that's scary, but I'm not freaking out. When the movie's over. You're not relating to it. Yes, exactly. But, I mean, you show a girl crawling out of a TV. Like, no, I don't know. No, I own it. No way. <laughs> like, no, thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty much a wuss with anything. And I love mysteries. So that's sort of the hard part is for me to to find something that has a good mystery without scaring the bejesus out of me. Yes, yes. Like, the one, I think, that kind of was really tiptoed that line in a really good way was The Others. I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't see that. You should see that because it's a really good thriller. And it's got suspenseful moments, but it's not like, I'm going to scare the shit out of you every ten seconds. It's It's actually... It's a really, it's a really good movie. You should definitely check that one out. That's cool. I'll, I will see if uh, if I can make it through a couple minutes <laughs> of it without turning. Because that's literally like there's just times when somebody will send me a link for something and I'll just be like, oh, made it thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> like there's there's a limit, and uh, and it's just, it's really embarrassing when you know when the screenwriter is trying to get you to you know or the original writer is trying to get you to watch something. I'm like, I cannot. I have all of the lights on, and I'm yeah, talking to you yeah. at the same time, and I can't do this. I'm like this is not fair. Yeah, when the, the house that I'm in now, it took me about a month. It sounds so bad, but it took me about a month to get used to just being upstairs by myself because. When you live in New York and you live in Brooklyn, you don't have an upstairs. You have an apartment. That's it. One floor. That's it. Usually maybe one bedroom if you're lucky. And now we have two floors and three bedrooms and, I mean, just all this space. So um, when my fiancé would be downstairs, I'd be really reluctant to go upstairs or vice versa because the kitchen is this huge kitchen with these wraparound windows and we didn't have curtains up. And she, it was like in the middle of the night, she's like, hey, can you just unpack the dishes? So I'm doing it. And I just see my reflection in the windows, but I don't know who could be watching me. And it just freaked me out. And it took me about a month to just kind of get over it. Like, okay, I'm in Vermont. I'm in kind of a, it's not a rural town. I mean, it's kind of a nice town, but there's nobody out here that wants to hurt anybody. Everybody's very friendly. Like, just just calm down. Yeah, it's... um when I went from, you know, back and forth between, like, you know, condos and apartments back to the house, but it's like I had always lived in a house growing up. So then when I had an apartment and I had to hear neighbors, you know, for the first Uh-oh. time and hear, it was like, it was sort of like retraining my brain. But then, but I would sort of, I could stand, like I said, I, I would take the cat and I would go hide in my bed and, you know, close the door and you know my cat luckily was really good like she there were there usually wasn't any kind of worry that she would need to get to her litter box in the oh. night or anything like that she would she was awesome she would sleep through the night um but you know there i would be like under all the blankets with the cat and like and you know i'd have to watch like pleasant things like i would turn psych on <laughs> i would just like yeah. put dvds of psych in <laughs> i'm like i just need happy thoughts right now <laughs> No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it's it's eerie how, how we're on the same page about this. Yeah. So, I mean, I like something like I Am Legend, to me, was not that kind of scary. Like, it was, okay. that to me was more suspenseful and worrisome. Um, but there's, 
I guess it does depend on really like how real something's feeling. Like, like Scream, I I have not forgiven the girl who made me watch Scream. Oh really? Yeah. And <laughs> I just yeah no I just can't. Well yeah I uh, I it's it's also really a shame to admit this but I haven't seen The Shining all the way through, and I I once was like I need to see this movie, so I put it on in the middle of the day and I couldn't get past the first ten minutes. No, this, I've only seen it in bits, like here oh, and there. Man, the beginning and this, these long, like, dolly shots of just going through the house with the kid on the bike, it just it just creeped me out. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't. And I, I just had to turn it off. Well, we all know that little kids are creepy. Yeah, that's true. Very, very true. Um, so, yeah, and then uh, I know that Matheson also did things like uh, like Hell House and that sort of... I mean, there's so many Haunted House remake-type things that that have all... Like, 13 Ghosts was even technically, like, a Haunted oh, House. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. I like that movie. It's. I mean, wasn't they were kind of, like, all trapped in a house, and that's what I remember. That was Tony Shalhoub, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that movie was creepy. I mean... It was. Yeah, I mean, it was... I thought it was really fun, and it was... It was violent in a creepy way. It wasn't violent for being just violent, but um, no, it was definitely kind of thrilling. And like, I, I was like, I I can kind of handle this. I I think I can handle this. Yeah, it ended. I think it. I think that ended more even keeled and more upbeat and positive than than just like everybody goes into a house and they all die. Right. You know, like it wasn't. It wasn't that sort of thing. Well, did, you like, see, did you see Cabin in the Woods? No. Uh, that movie, I think, that movie to me was like the idea for, f- with, for me, roller coasters was something I never liked as a kid, and I went on one years ago, and I, and I just loved it. It was rock and roller coaster, it was like this indoor roller coaster at Universal Studios, and, uh, it was like, you go into the sound studio, and it's Aerosmith, and they're about to leave for a big party, and you're like, oh, you should come with us, and you get in this roller coaster, which is a stretch limo, and the thing goes from zero to 60 in like five seconds, and you're just in wall-to-wall sound on this neon highway going like a thousand miles an hour. It was awesome. And that was the day I was like, I think I can do roller coasters. And the Cabin in the Woods was that same moment for scary movies, where it's just like, I mean, granted, it's a huge parody on the genre. Right, that's my understanding. kind of creepy, but it was still, it was just so much fun. Like, See, that's I, the thing, is like, I'd have to be able to get through the story to get to the, you know, the parody acknowledgement. Yeah. The parodies kind of happen almost immediately in that movie, which is kind of a relief when I, did, when I was like, I'll, I'll go see this movie. And I liked it enough to take my best friend, and he, he, had, he had problems. He was like, that scared the shit out of me. Okay. Yeah. I, see, I also have, um, I, I seem to have different panic levels depending on the size of the screen. Really? So if it's, like, if I'm watching it on something, like, a relatively, like, smaller TV, and obviously during the day, you know, that's a whole different experience than me trying to go to the movies. I had a panic attack watching Signs, which is not a scary movie. Really? Yeah, and I was in the movie theater holding my, you know, holding somebody's hand and just crying. And, like, I, and it was like the silent cry. Like, I was just there so frozen and tears coming down that they didn't even know that I was crying. Wow. I'm like, I'm like how could you not know that I was having a panic attack? <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's you know the, the scary movie thing is it's hard. I even tried to get over it by trying to write 
scary stories. Like I tried to sit down um, and uh, as like sort of just a little challenge to myself mm-hmm. and see if I could do a scary short story. And I failed miserably. <laughs> you scared yourself. I couldn't. I couldn't even well, you do. Know what? That sounds like you succeeded. I couldn't even do like a page though. Like I couldn't come up with something that I was comfortable enough creating. Mm-hmm. Like I started, you know, got a couple paragraphs. And and it was actually, you know, I, I was trying to use Darren Brown, one of his performances, as like an inspiration. And I was just like, God, I cannot do this any kind of justice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know who I was mentioning this to, but there was a a short anthology that, that someone had posted about to contribute to. And I think it was about uh, true crime stories. And I was like, sweet, I'll totally look into that. And I was doing some research on true crime stories, and I came up with this. I saw, I read the scariest things. Like, just unsolved mysteries to me freak me out. They just freak me out. And, and actually, part of the research of Houdini was I was doing research on Scotland Yard, and evidently, uh, I think it was like 19, 1903-1903. I, I forget the date. It was at the turn of the century when the old building was being abandoned and they were building a new one. But I think it was like kind of in the same area of London. And um, it's known as, I forget what the, um, I'm forgetting the name, but it was like the name of the street, but it was like, say it was like White Street. It was like the White the, the white Murders. And apparently in the building that they were renovating, they found a, a woman that was basically hacked up. And it's just, it's a, I mean, for for a police station to find a murder in their building and to not be able to solve it, it's like, man, that's that's creepy. Like, yeah, that's just nuts. Was yeah. it was, uh, White Chapel, maybe? Was it- yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was. But yeah, I mean, it was just the it was kind of a strange coincidence that. Yeah, when something happens like right under your nose. In fact, I just started. Um, I tried to watch the the BBC show Luther a while ago, and I really okay. couldn't get into it. So yesterday. Um, I was a complete and utter slug and just sat in the air conditioning and and turned on a bunch of different shows throughout the day. And I, I started rewatching Luther. And in this one episode, there's this obvious, like, creep sociopath killer who puts on, like, the creepiest mask ever. Oh, really? So he's got the hoodie and the mask. And he is, like, literally live streaming through the Internet his, you know, an attack. And, like, they're trying to identify the street and the address and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, this is kind of crazy shit that probably really could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, the like whenever I, I see a movie, I was talking about this with my best friend. Whenever we watch a movie uh, with, like, a bank heist, and it's a really clever one, my best friend always brings up this point. He's like, why didn't the writers just say, screw a movie, let's just do this and we'll be millionaires. Because it's such a great heist, it's like, yeah. it would totally work. I yeah. was like, yeah, that's a good point. And like, it's the same thing with like, you know, the serial killer movies. It's like, that's a really clever way to kill someone. You've just right? given so, a bunch of yeah. people an idea. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's me watching every episode of Leverage. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, 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 I should totally be able to steal that man A. <laughs> oh, and, and yeah, that's that's actually a funny point because... Uh, my fiance is a curator at the Fine Arts Museum here at the, the college in, in Middlebury. And, uh, you know, the first thing that I asked her when I found out what she did for a living, I was like, so so movies like Thomas Crown Affair. And she kind of just stopped me. She was like, no, 
Museums don't have that kind of security. People don't actually do that. That is all made up. Like, really? <laughs> She's like, yeah, museums don't have that money. They, they don't have the money. Yeah. It's like, so to steal a painting might actually be kind of easy because the security is kind of light, but people just don't do it. Um, but she did have some pretty good stories about uh, things being swiped from museums that she uh, worked at. I did, I, I did a uh, museum heist short story, so I hope to someday have that out for people oh, yeah? to read. Yeah, I really, I worked really hard on that. Not as hard as this historical fiction piece, but but, <laughs> but pretty darn hard. Well, as far as research, um, would you say you're, you're, is it primarily on the Internet? Y- yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because my as as having a, a art historian as a, as a fiance, she's kind of a stickler about research. Like she finds me doing research on the internet not research. She's like, that does not count. You need to just go to a library. I was well, like, really? I, I kind of feel that way, but at the same time, I'm like, first of all, I live in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Second of all, um, the museums like that I have in mind aren't you know I. Even though, because of my modeling and stuff, I basically had a museum in mind that was going to be my fictional museum, and it was one of these museums where I worked. So I don't, I don't think that I can just go in there and, you know, I'm used to working with artists. That means I don't know anybody in security. I don't know anybody in administration. I can't just go in there and start asking questions and go, oh, really, swear to God, I'm a writer. I want to <laughs> know about your security system. I mean, you know, it yeah, no, seemed, seemed a little out there and crazy. So instead, I just started researching security systems online. Um, and I did f- actually find about um, some, like, you know, small size museum heists and, um, you know, th- like security systems that had been implemented. And it's just like some simple stuff, like, you know, the rotating cameras and, uh, okay. you know, and no, the stuff's really not that great. But... It's better than nothing. No, that's true. That's sort true. of, sort of like all of our closed circuit surveillance. It's like when you watch the stuff on crime dramas, it's like, oh, these pictures are immaculate, no matter what time of night it is, and yeah. you can zoom in and you can get every detail of a person's features, and you can do facial recognition, and it's like, no, you can barely freaking make out the human <laughs> form. Yeah, any any show that features like computer hacking or or whatnot, it's just a fancy graphic on a screen. It's like no, that's just it's not that sexy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, as far as research, like I don't have an excuse because I do have a humongous library in my backyard, practically, because I live on a college campus, more or less. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there are some things that I, I told her. I was like, you just you can't find in a book, like. Yes, the stuff that I'm doing about Houdini, you know, I've, I've really kind of gone and researched, even if they're, they're books that have been copied and put up on, you know, Google Docs or something. So I'm actually looking at historical text. Um, right, I was just going to bring that up, that there's so much that's already been scanned and available. Yeah, yeah it's, and, and, and she is right, though. Like, some of the stuff that I found, as far as, like, other other characters incorporated in this story, um that I didn't know anything about were like the the Martinka brothers. So the Martinka brothers had a shop in what is now considered Chelsea in Manhattan, but they had their shop was basically across the East Coast was the place like the mecca to go to to prove yourself as a magician. And this was very real. I had no idea that this existed and this is kind of where Harry 
got his start because he was part he was part of I think like there were maybe a dozen guys that would come to perform new tricks and they were they had their specialties and Harry was the handcuff king and uh so yeah the the fact that I found all of this through you know just an old book that was on Google Docs was was pretty awesome uh Kevin had sent it to me so I just dug through it and uh, I mean, that's definitely something I couldn't have found on, on the Internet because I wouldn't have known that I was looking for it. So a lot of the research that I did up front has changed because, you know, I'm reading all these new things and, you know, inspiration kind of hits you differently when you're kind of really far along into a project. Um, so it really did help a lot and shape kind of the whole plot and how the first arc is going to end and who's involved and, and all that. So it's it's been really, really informative. So have you ever wanted to to give up on a story once you started it? Um, there's only one story that I, I did. Um, but other than that, for me, I don't, I don't believe any really good story. If you really believe the story is great, it will never die. You'll, you'll find a way to make it, whether it's revising it, whether it's finding another artist, whether it's adapting it into some other form. But everything I've put out with the exception of one story... I haven't really given up on. Um, Houdini is one of the rare examples where it was it was an idea from the start. It kind of went into production and we just made it. Um, another project that I'm gonna I guess I'll have ready in a few weeks to kind of pitch around is a story that has gone through so many revisions. It's gone through three different title changes, which is the most for anything I've ever worked on. It's gone through four different artists at this point. Um, but I, I, I believe in it, and I believe in it so much that I actually scripted the entire thing. It's a four-issue mini, and I just scripted it because I wanted to have it done. I wanted to finish it. And that was my only goal this year, was to just finish projects. So I finished two so far. Um, Houdini's three issues out of five done. Um, there's another series I'm, I'm co-writing with, with someone that's uh, four issues out of six done. So like I'm, I feel good that I'm kind of uh, achieving my goals. The, the reason that I was I was so glad that we were scheduled to talk about this today is um, because one of one of my artist friends is just ready to give up. He's like been doing this for twenty years, and you know, is sort of at that point where he's like, okay, I understand that people earn their sort of like you know f- the the fame and fortune of comics, which we all know is kind of a joke. Yep. Um, but the recognition and the getting the job offers and at least getting even creator own stuff with a really reputable publisher, um, you know, like after fifteen or twenty years, you sort of expect to be there already. And the fact that there's plenty of good people who still aren't there, um, it's discouraging. So like I'm like way newbie. I'm like just starting out and discouraged half the time. So I'm just more or less like, well, whatever. It's not, you know, like my life depends on it if this doesn't get done. But um, you're at this, you know, higher elevated step where, you know, like you said, you you know that you needed to get stuff done and you just like tasked yourself with with completion. So. Um, what was your encouragement? Um, that's kind of come in a couple different forms. I think early on when I was uh, co-hosting a, a writer's podcast with Ryan K. Lindsay and Curtis Weeb, that was kind of a really good reigniter. Every, I, I think we were recording every... It started out every two weeks. I think it got stretched every four weeks. But every time we talk, you know, we kind of... 
we kind of bitched about the same stuff, like, you know, just life getting in the way or just, you know, trying to get something somewhere into some publisher and just talking it out was very therapeutic and that was really helpful. Um, and that, that worked for a very long time until obviously the show's kind of stalled and we haven't recorded in a while and Curtis had to step away and, and Ryan and I both, you know, the work we're doing now is, is, has, I'd say tripled since we started the show like a year and a half ago. Yeah, well, he's busy with all that pony pony stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was on, if you guys don't know Ryan K. Lindsay, go back a few episodes. I, he was on the show. Yeah, yeah, great guy. And, he's uh, hilarious. Yeah, so, you know, that, that worked for a while, and then I, I actually kind of got frustrated because um, I wasn't kind of, I wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, every, my closest friends, including some of my siblings, are accomplished. They they set out to do something and they did it. Like my my oldest brother is a doctor. My oldest sister is a lawyer. My I'm a triplet, so I have two triplet brothers. One of them uh, is a lead texture painter. He worked for ILM for many years. He's working in a, a different studio in Vancouver now. He's worked on Watchmen, The Incredible Hulk, um, some you know huge movies. And my other brother is uh, owns a CrossFit gym down in Miami and. You know, he set out to do it, and he's doing it now. He's, you know, kind of almost at the verge where he's going to open a second location. And I still don't feel like I've gotten to the point where they are all at, where they set out to do something, they're doing it, and they're expanding upon that. So I was getting really discouraged, and I realized there, were, there was a two-fold problem I was having. One was I was too obsessed with publishing, um, and that I was too focused on trying to make projects work that just weren't working. Like I maybe couldn't find an artist or the artists working on the projects were having to take their time because they were getting other work. Um, prime example was Cobble Hill and Southern Dog were two books that came out last October that I worked on. And those artists, because of those books, got some attention and they now have paid projects. And like Selena, for the artist on Cobble Hill, she's got a really great paid project that's has allowed her to go full time, which is great, but you know it's kind of made our project kind of on the back burner, which is something i don't I don't uh, falter for at all. So I was getting really frustrated with these two things, and what I realized first was I need to start just creating new stories because you know uh, I had this conversation with uh, Steve Niles, who I've, I've become friends with, and he was telling me that you know he thinks it's funny that people call him a prolific writer because he doesn't really necessarily view himself that way because you know, when he got something made, when 30 Days a Night became big, it wasn't like he was writing new things. They were like, what else you got? And he was just emptying drawers. He's like, that's what you got to do. You just got to empty drawers when the time comes. And that's what I, I was like. I need to shift my focus on that because I need to just create new properties. I need new things to work on because it, it that was my um, release and, and relief was finding something new to work on. Like when I started working on something new and Tim Daniel, who I'm co-writing a couple projects with, he was instrumental in this because he would just call me he's like hey I got this idea he pitched me a one liner I'm like I love it I'll I'll send you a one page synopsis next week and we'll work on it and that was a really good motivator and then as far as publishing something I realized particularly with Houdini was that I don't need to focus on publishing because what I was doing was I was focusing on an idea that doesn't really exist that idea was I want to be a published writer well you can't really become a published writer if that's all you think about because you're not actually writing anything. You're, you're holding on to this lofty ideal, this, this concept, but it's not real. 
And what I needed to focus on was actually just producing work because I want to produce work at a caliber that I'm not knocking on editors' doors, they're knocking on my door. And I know plenty of guys that have produced work where that was the result. It was just so good that people had to notice. And they weren't focused on, oh, can you can you just greenlight this project for me? Can, can, I just hope this works out. I hope this submission goes through. And then, you you know, I would just dwell on those things. I would just dwell on a submission letter. And I, at the end of the day, I hadn't produced anything. So those were, those were big things. I remember back when I um, had started writing more, and this was before I even got into the comics. This was many years ago. And, you know, if I went and heard, you know, went or heard authors speaking at bookshops and stuff, uh, everybody would ask about finding an agent because that was, this was, this was long before, you know, self-publishing became as easy as it is right now. And every writer would say the exact same thing and say, well, what have you gotten finished? You know? Where yeah. is your story done? You can't ask about finding an agent or selling your work to a publisher or whatever until it's done. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if if anybody is ever curious about that, by the way, that sort of like whole process, there's if you hashtag ask agent on Twitter, every once in a while there will be um, sort of like a, just very simple, like Q&A session with literary agents, um, including Eric Rubin, who's been a guest on the show. Um, but it's obviously different in comics because we don't need agents. Right. But we do need art teams. <laughs> yeah, you do need art teams. And with creator-owned comics, the writer most often than not becomes the, the editor, the production designer, the, the publisher at yes. some times. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, Anybody who wants to write comics, don't focus on getting published. Like, have that as a goal, but don't have it as, as like, the end-all, be-all. Because, you know, you just need to focus on, on writing good stories. I want to, you know, write stories that, you know... I mean, the conversation about an agent is that... Or even, like, working in traditional publishing or even working in film and TV is that you've got to impress other people. You've got, you know, with movies, you've got to impress... Dozens of people to get one project made, and in comics, the only thing, only person you need to impress is the artist, and that's something I focus on. I write for the artist. I want the artist to be excited because that gets me excited, and we produce a comic book. Everything else is just, you know, icing on the cake. Um, and you know, when I stopped focusing on that, I just was a lot more happier with writing every day. Like, it wasn't, it didn't feel like such a chore, like, oh, I gotta do this in order to feel good about maybe getting publishing. I just feel good about just writing. It's like, oh, I wrote 10 pages today. Awesome. And that's, you know, just wake up and do it again. Yeah, I've, uh, because I'm, I consider myself very, very slow. I'm slow at reading and I'm slow at writing. So if I script a mere two pages, um, I, I've tried to just sort of change my thoughts and say, oh my god, I only wrote Two pages into well, I wrote two pages today that didn't wouldn't have gotten written if I didn't do it. Exactly. exactly. Um, you know, my goal might be sixty pages, and it might take me a whole lot longer than other people who can crank that out in a few weeks. But you know, if I get my two pages and I'm happy with them, then I just need to be okay with that. Yeah, and, and something that I, I I tell everyone is. I had read this quote from Brian Michael Bendis when I first started, and, and he said something along the lines of, 
every day you're not writing, someone steals your dream job. And I think about that every day. And, you know, that's what motivates me to write because I want to get my dream job. And in, in order to do that, I just got to keep writing. I don't have to focus on anything else. Like literally nothing else matters. Just do the work and everything will kind of work out as, as they're supposed to. Let's, um, let, let me ask you a couple process questions. Sure. Um, have you ever started to hate your characters, or at least one of your characters in a story? Oh, that's a great question. Um, think about this. I don't, I don't know if I'd necessarily say I hate them. Um, because I kind of have to align with them in some way in order to write them. But uh, Did they ever I, sort of, like, start taking on their own, like, you're, you know, because I've had that struggle where I'm like, you're not doing what I expected you to be doing right now. Like, <laughs> I expected you to be the good guy, and you're turning into an asshole. There's, um, there's, there's, a, there's a minor character, or a, uh, I guess a supporting character in this uh, comic um, Sleep Death that, that's gone through several revisions, and I'm going to have ready next month, where he's a supporting character who is supposed to be not very good, not very nice, and... You know, it's kind of hard to, like, it got to a point where he was, by the fourth issue, he was speaking, like, I felt like he was speaking for himself, like, I wasn't having to think about what he'd say in, in certain situations, but uh, it was kind of like channeling a side of myself that I'd never be in public, like, just being kind of rude and, and offensive and, um, you know, all these things that I think I could theoretically be, but yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to write characters you you want to hate. Um, I just, yeah, I just write a character that I think is not so good. And hopefully people are like, Hey, I kind of hate that guy. Cause he's not very good. Well, the, the first time that I consciously noticed this in reading was when I started reading Clive Cussler, I started with the book Sahara and that was like <laughs> decade before the movie. Um, I was like getting on a plane and I, didn't know what to do, so I, you know, went to the newsstand and bought a book. And um, so, the, you know, the character, all of the characters at that point were, they had so many books out, and I didn't even realize, like, at what point in the series I was. I just picked it up, and I was able to read it from there. And I loved them so much. And so I was reading the series forward from that point on, from Sahara on. And then my I didn't realize that my dad actually had, like, this whole collection. Oh, wow. So he gave me this giant-ass box filled with Clive Custer books. So I tried to go back to the beginning and read the beginning. And this character, Dirk Pitt, was such a raging douchebag in the, <laughs> that I couldn't finish the first book. I'm like, you are just a fucking creep. You're like practically oh. assaulting this woman on a beach. I fucking hate you. You are not. <laughs> you are not my, the character that I know and love. Interesting. Yeah. So it was like you know here, Clive Kessler took you know ten, twelve books or whatever to get to the point where this character was had been you know this evolution of him, and you know then iconically played by uh, Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, 
you know, and, and I was just wondering, you know, I, you know, I would love to talk to the author and just go, geez, did you, did you uh, realize that what you did? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those things where when I think about it, I don't, in, in books and comics, there isn't, or the ones I've been writing, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not really aware of those types of characters. I feel them very strongly in TV shows and movies. Like, there are characters that you just hate and you just want to see die horrible deaths. But I guess that's a, that's a really interesting point. I, I'd, I'd actually like to kind of reread some of the stuff I've written to see if that, if I did any of that intentionally or, or if at all. Because it's, uh, it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think usually characters go on to a more of a path of redemption. I mean, I think yeah. that even when they start out as heinous individuals, there's always some sort of, you know, penance. Well, I guess I guess the, the best example of something I've written would be Southern Dog, where, you know, it's this kid who lives in the deep south and, and it's, you know, six weeks before Obama's inauguration and he's surrounded by racism, blatant racism, and he's even picking up on, um, or he's sensing that his dad kind of aligns with that worldview. And something that I was very conscious of when writing about the father was that, you know, in the context of how he treats his son as a father, he is what would be considered an exceptional father. He's attentive, he's supportive, he's loving, everything that you want a dad to be, except he just has this one quirk where he sees the world very differently. And the one thing I wanted people to read from that issue is that, yeah, you find this big reveal at the end of the first issue that maybe he's not someone you want you want to trust or even like, but you can't help but like him throughout the story because he's done nothing to lead you astray. And, you know, because I, I've, I've met people like that where, you know, they, they are good-natured people, but they just have different worldviews that I can't align with. And, and growing up overseas, I saw that all the time. I, you know, growing up overseas, it's, it's, was very common that the society and the culture that you grew up in your household might completely contrast the one that you were living within, depending on the country. And it just, you, you learn to, um, adapt and appreciate and acknowledge different cultures almost simultaneously. Um, so it was a very interesting way of growing up, but yeah, I guess that was something that I was very conscious of because I wanted to write about someone who is who is kind of evil in a lot of ways, but not in the kind of um, obvious obvious ones for sure. Right, and um, when well, you obviously have these. See, you and I were talking about being in- introverted and extroverted, and. Um, and how I don't think that that we're taught the definitions very well. And um, I can remember, you know, geez, like in grammar school and high school and stuff, you have to take these personality tests. And, you know, a lot of it's just for kicks, just to right. see where you fall on these, these charts and diagrams and things. And I can remember when one of them, it was, we did this, I think, in an English creative writing class or something. And um, what I remember them saying was stuff like, oh, introverts are shy people and extroverts are outgoing people. And um, and I don't know that that's really true because later on in college I had it explained a lot better, which was um, that introverts 
can find inspiration inside themselves, even though obviously we're all influenced by our world. Right. But that they, um, that they sort of, not that you retreat, it's sort of, when you say things like shy, it makes it sound like you're a hermit and you're retreating and you're, you know, you're antisocial and extroverts are these, you know, histrionic, wild and crazy, you know, (laughs) insane people. And it was, it's more like, no, you get your inspirations and your drive from inside yourself or you get the inspirations and, you know, drive from external sources. And that, felt a little bit better and less insulting <laughs> definition. No, me. for sure, for sure. And, I, and you know, I didn't actually figure out the difference until, it sounds so weird, but, like, March when I was in Seattle, I, was, I mentioned to you uh, before we recorded, was I was hanging out with my friend Curtis Weave, and he was telling me about introvert-extrovert, and I was, like, listening. I was like, yeah, no, I'm an extrovert. And he's like, uh, he's like, I don't know about that. Because, yeah, that's my idea of it. My whole life was, because I like to socialize, I'm extrovert. And I almost kind of taught myself to be that when I moved to New York. I mean, I was I was extremely shy throughout high school and college, like painfully shy. Like, I don't even recognize myself back then. And what changed was when I moved to New York, I was like, I was, it sounds strange, but I was really fascinated and kind of mildly obsessed with the book Catcher in the Rye as a kid. And I was so intrigued by the character of Holden Caulfield because I was I always used to think when I'd read that book, like, I could never be that guy. He would just find himself, and he put himself consciously in these awkward, like, weird situations. And it was just so awkward to read. And when I moved to New York, I remember thinking, I'm going to be Holden Caulfield. I'm just going to go out and just put myself in awkward situations, even if, if it kills me, just to get kind of get out of my shell. And, yeah, one one year in New York, it's all it takes to be a social person. But that doesn't mean that I was, you know, an extrovert. Like, I really had to kind of almost train myself to be that. And, you know, I'm really an introvert. I prefer, you know, I prefer to recharge my battery by myself, and I don't need other people to do that, and, and I need that quiet time. So. Yeah, and I and I remember, you know, very distinct changes where I... I'm quite sure that I like switched from one to the other because I really did like, not that I liked being alone. I just always felt friendless, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, And it wasn't by choice. I just sort of felt like, well, you know, I'm not popular and, (laughs) um, you know, I you know I didn't have sisters and I think that really makes a big difference. Like you're you're part of triplets. I mean, yeah, that's, you're, cool. yeah, that's like awesome. I mean, like I always had friends, I guess, because of my brothers. But you know, when I got to high school, I really distanced myself from them like as as much as possible. We played basketball basketball our entire lives. Like that's all we wanted to do. That's like when I was in fifth grade, I thought I was going to play in the NBA, like some crazy pipe dream. And then when I got to high school, I just didn't like being associated as one of the Holtz. Like, oh, you're one of the Holtz. And it's like, I have an identity. I'm a person. I'm not this, you know, I'm not part of a collective. And that's why I was like, I'm going to do something that they wouldn't. So I decided to do theater, and I did theater for the rest of high school because I was like, they'll never get on stage. And that also helped me kind of get out of my shell a bit. 
But um, basically, yeah, what did it for me too? Because yeah. in college, it was one of those things where I couldn't. I, I had no major. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. I really thought that I was going to join the army after high really? school, and that that was it. And I would figure out my shit there. And with circumstances of you know my family, it was like, no, you will not. So I was like, okay, then. I'm going to apply to, you know, the big state university because I'm an A student. Didn't get in. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so I went to, like, the smallest, you know, private school in the area, and I had to pick a major, and I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I really like film. Well, let me see if there's a film program. Well, there's no film program. Oh. Okay, well, they have, uh, they have a TV program. Oh, no, that's gone, too. Okay, they have a radio program. All right, there we go. <laughs> Like fucking sign me up. That's it. It was like literally days before orientation. I had like, I had no plan, and so it wasn't until somebody you had to declare before orientation. Um. Well, yeah, you had to like pick out. Yeah, you had to pick out your courses. I mean, you could have. You, you didn't have to. Like, you could have done all your course stuff. Oh, sure, sure. Um. But I, you know, I I needed a plan because that's that's the way I am, and um. I can remember, like, my first time trying to talk into a microphone and just being so scared to death of it. And I'm like, I'm in this room by myself, and I'm talking out loud. This is bizarre shit. <laughs> and Well, you know, what's really bizarre about hearing yourself is when I started doing the podcast with Ryan Curtis, when I – the first time I heard my voice, this, it's so weird, but it sounded like both my brother's voices mixed together. Like, I remember thinking, like, I kind of hear myself, but I kind of hear my brothers. This is so weird. Like, it was a really weird out-of-body experience. Um, and, yeah, doing enough recordings, you kind of slow down your speech. You try not to repeat yourself. I mean, all these little things that you kind of get used to. Right. I mean, yeah, it was obviously, you know, incorporating theater was, was part of what we had to do. Absolutely. And... Um, and our theater professor is very hard on me. Um, but he, I mean, he was just very hard on everybody, on absolutely everybody. Uh, but I think because I sort of, like, I guess I looked up to him in such a strange way that not too many people did. I was, like, scared of him but attached to him. And I just wanted to, to do well. So, and it wasn't like in a kiss-ass kind of way necessarily, but I knew that he was, you know, his wife was an actress as well, and they were obviously like crazy about, you know, British culture and British theater and all that stuff. So, you know, like I did an entire like Rowan Atkinson oh, wow. as like, you know, a 20-minute, you know, you know, lecture or whatever one time, and I was just like, I am so ace in this class. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it, you know, and that's, that's the way it was. I mean, like when I did, uh, I did like some little, like, you know, the little soliloquy from Hamlet or whatever, like I did, I, I did that dead poet society thing where like I climbed up on the top oh, of the right. desk and did it on top of a desk. Um, you know, this is all like shit that I would never have thought that I was capable of doing. Yeah. And, and honestly, just how I even got into comics was pure accident and, but when I found that, when I decided that I was going to do it, and you know, the the first thing I ever wrote, I sent it to my older brother, who was really the guy who got me back into comics, just reading them, and he doesn't give praise lightly. Like he 
something's got to be good for him to even acknowledge it. So I sent him this thing, which actually right now, looking back on it, was not very good. But he read it at some point, and he and he just he called me, and he's like, "Hey, I just read your script for this comic book. It's fucking amazing." I was like, "Really? No, seriously, seriously? What'd you think of it?" He's like, "No, I I literally read it from page one to the end. It's good. It's great." And and then I was like, "I think I've discovered what I need to do with my life." And that was an, another. That's another constant motivator for me is that I know that there's nothing else I want to create in this world other than comic books because nothing else feels like a reflex. Like I don't get up and want to do anything else. Like comics is it. That's what I want to be making. And hopefully if, if anybody, you know, or if you in particular, um, you know, if you have that moment where you're like, I, I can't do this anymore. Or I need a break or I'm not succeeding to my own expectations enough. Take a damn break. It's okay. You know, yeah, if you're already not the golden child on every, you know, blog headline, then, you know, people are so afraid that they're going to disappear. And that the thought of disappearing is really, I think it's frightening to most people. Other people choose it because they just need to get away. Sure. But, you know, if, if you already think of yourself as like, you know, not being a household name, then don't worry about it. Don't worry about that part. Take a break and rejuvenate and take care of yourself, take care of your, you know, your body and your mental state and your family. And, you know, it's comics. They'll be here when you get back. Yeah. I mean, there's no shame in, in letting life get in the way sometimes. I mean, I went through a a pretty horrible breakup and that kind of sidelined me for, like months, I'd say like maybe two or three months I didn't write anything, and that's okay. I mean, stuff's gonna happen. And the thing is, is that everybody struggles. Even the people that I know that are considered established struggle, and that's just the name of this game. And and comic books is like I I really wish I remember where I heard this, but I once heard someone say on a panel, "Comic books will never love you," and I think it's so true. Like you just Comic books will never love you. You just have to have that unconditional love yourself and just keep making the books that you want to make and and nothing else matters. I mean, if you and your artists are excited about it, that's that's all that matters. People will pick up on that, that energy and they'll read it and they'll like it and you'll be on your way. Yeah, that's pretty pretty great uh, reminder and um, motivation, basically, in, in its own way. That's... Whenever we can find something that that kicks our ass into gear, you know, it's helpful. Um, well, before I let you go, we have to get some important information, like where people can find you and learn about After Houdini and uh, learn about where to follow you. Um, yeah, After Houdini uh, is through readchallenger.com. Um, so that's available uh, right now. And uh, I'm... Constantly on Twitter, it's just Jeremy underscore Holt. Um, I have a website, which is clumpoftrees.wordpress.com. I also have a column that I was writing for Multiversity Comics called Strange Love, which you can actually check out on, on multiversitycomics.com. Um, there's about 16 installments there that kind of chronicalizes the first 
say the first four years of me breaking in or attempting to break in. Um, so there's a lot of really helpful advice there as far as, you know, experiences I've personally had with editors, um, publishers, with, you know, the ups and downs of life with comics. Um, so it's a, it's a interesting story, I'd like to think. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people come up to me at shows and mention how, you know, it really helped inform them. So, yeah, anybody can get a lot of information from that. All right. And, of course, you guys can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber and get everything else that you need to know at AmberUnmasked.com. You can look for Amber Unmasked on Facebook to find the uh, page. Um, and Google+. Plus. I'm on there, too. Amber Love on Google+. Plus. Um, Jeremy, thanks so much for this amazing and informative and fun time. Oh, thank you so much. This is a, this is really great. I I absolutely love it. This is um you know as as long as I can steal you away from from Ryan, I think I'm just gonna keep having you on. <laughs> that works. I think I think he'll be okay with that. I think he'll be all right. All right. Well, he'll just have to keep coming back to you. Yes. Um, you know that dreaded time zone issue, but uh, but what great fun. Absolutely. Um. All right, everybody. Uh, you know. Take care of yourselves, and don't forget to check out After Houdini by Jeremy Holt.